During the season of Epiphany, we're preaching this sermon series called Jesus' Grandmothers in Matthew's royal but checkered pedigree of Jesus' ancestors in the first chapter of his gospel. <clears throat> Matthew tells us about 42 grandfathers of Jesus and four grandmothers, five if you count Mother Mary herself. So there's Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and this morning Bathsheba. Why those four? Why only four? It's a good question. I think it's because uh, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba foreshadow Mother Mary herself and her eccentric son in their edgy, sketchy relationship to the patriarchy. They are at the fringe of society and they sort of warn us about what Mother Mary will look like. So today, Bathsheba, pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> At the height of his power and popularity, King David of Israel has an affair with a married woman. might be important to know that David already has seven wives, which is more than most ambitious Mormon patriarchs would take, but it apparently is not enough. It is the spring of the year, says the historian, when self-respecting kings are on the battlefield defending the kingdom. But for some reason, David stays home in Jerusalem safe and sound and sends General Joab to fight his enemies. David is such a slug in this story. One afternoon, he even takes a nap, and when he wakes up, he goes up, shuffles up to the rooftop of the palace, maybe bored with nothing else to do, and up there on the roof, he spies a comely neighbor bathing on the roof of her own house, just a couple of doors down from the palace. He sends for her. They have an affair. She gets pregnant. Now, for a long, long time, Hebrew Bible scholars have had this question of this text. Who seduces whom? Is Bathsheba a helpless victim in this story, or is she a knowing agent? Maybe she engineered this little chance meeting. Maybe she knew that her spa was in eyesight of the palace. In a droll and clipped aside, the historian says the woman was very beautiful. Maybe she knew the enthralling power of her beauty. Maybe she's a social and political climber who would just love to live in the palace with the most prosperous, propertied, powerful plutocrat in Israelite history. The text even hints, get this, the text even hints that Bathsheba knows what time of the month it is. She may have calculated the possibility of a successful conception so that her offspring would instantly become a prince or a princess the minute they were born. Now, those kinds of questions are no longer acceptable of course. If we learned anything from Harvey Weinstein and Jeff Epstein and Matt Lauer and Larry Nasser, it is that sexual relationships in power differentials are not appropriate. A doctor should never sleep with a patient, nor a therapist with a client, nor a teacher with a student, nor a boss with an employee, as many errant celebrities and transgressive CEOs have found out to their dismay. This is King David, remember, and what David wants, David gets. When the king says, how about it, it is not her option to say, well, no, thank you, not today. This is more royal rape than mutual infidelity. By the way, did I mention that Bathsheba 
was married to one of David's most loyal soldiers. His name is Uriah, and now David's in big trouble. As omnipotent as he almost is in his royal power, even the king of Israel is not supposed to sleep with his soldiers who are off in a foreign land fighting the enemies and risking life and limb. That's what you learn in the first class of commander-in-chief school, right? That's what they teach you on the first day at West Point. Don't sleep with your soldiers' wives. David's in big trouble, but he has a clever idea. He sends to General Joab, and he says, send Uriah home to the friendly confines of Jerusalem for a little R&R. So you see what David's thinking, right? He thinks that Uriah is going to go straight home, and after a long sabbatical from the marriage bed, will take instant advantage of his conjugal rights. That way, when the child arrives nine months later, maybe nobody will notice that he looks more like David than like Uriah. But Uriah is a ramrod straight marine. He is completely loyal to the core. When he gets back to Jerusalem, he doesn't even see Bathsheba. He doesn't go home. He pitches his modest pup tent on David's front lawn because it would be unseemly to enjoy oneself so sweetly while your comrades are bunkered down in a muddy foxhole within enemy arrow range. And so when David's stratagem, almost harmless stratagem, turns out to be barren, pardon the pun, David turns out, turns to an uglier contrivance. Sends again to General Joab and says, make Uriah the point person in a dangerous advance and at the worst possible moment withdraw the front line, leaving him and a few unsuspecting comrades alone and abandoned. Do you remember Willem Dafoe as Sergeant Elias from Oliver Stone's brilliant film, Platoon? David's infatuation with this married woman is literally a fatal attraction. Not only do Uriah and innocent colleagues get killed, God is so incensed with God's favorite king ever that God takes the life of David and Bathsheba's innocent infant son. Well, you know the rest of the story. David takes Bathsheba as his eighth wife, they have another son, they call this one Solomon, who not only grows up to be the richest, most wise and powerful king in Hebrew history, but also turns out to be, 25 generations later, the great, 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 great times 25 grandfather of the cosmic Messiah himself. That's how Bathsheba fits into Jesus' story. Why? Why does Matthew tell us this story? Maybe at its simplest and most transparent level, it's nothing more than a morality tale, right? In other words, remember your marriage vows for God's sake. Is it that hard? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Maybe nobody dies most of the time, but every illicit union is a fatal attraction. Maybe nobody literally dies, but something dies. Love dies, trust dies, your self-respect dies. Often, usually, a marriage dies. Sometimes a family dies, or whatever that word family meant before. Can I say this to you, and will you hear it as a word of grace from someone in whose office the wreckage of infidelity often washes up? It's so heartbreaking, the sadness that results 
when we betray each other. Did you know that 30% of Tinder users are already married? I've told you this before. There was an uptick in the divorce statistics in 2007. Can you guess why? 2007. Facebook. Old high school flames. Now, I'm not naive. I know marriage can shipwreck on many a jagged shoal. She keeps a cold bed. He looks right through her as if she weren't there. He loves his work so much he has no love left over for her. We were too young when we got married. We were children. We had no idea what we would become, what she would become. A while back, Kathy and I were browsing in Greenwich's version of the bookstall, a quaint little bookstore around the corner from the church, and Kathy picks up what was then Ann Tyler's latest novel, The Amateur Marriage, great title, The Amateur Marriage, and my loving, beloved wife of 22 years at the time pokes me in the ribs and says, look, Bill, Ann Tyler has written a book about us. <laughs> but it's a great title, one of the great titles in recent American fiction because it describes every marriage there ever was, right? There are no professionals in marriage. We're all just making it up as we go along. But I know from personal experience that two amateurs can create beautiful things if they keep trying. So maybe that's what Matthew means to tuck Bathsheba into Jesus' genealogy. Just a simple morality tale. So remember your wedding vows. I think, however, there's something profounder going on. I think... Matthew means for us to see these women, Tamar, Ruth, Rahab, and Bathsheba, as foreshadowing for Mother Mary herself and Mother Mary's spectacular son, Jesus. Because we're going to see these themes played out spectacularly and dramatically in Jesus' life once he steps out on history stage. There's always a second chance, Matthew wants to tell us. Out of fatal attraction. God brings natal redemption because this illicit union, this fatal attraction produces generations hence a young son named Jesus, Yeshua or Joshua in Hebrew, which means he will save their, his people from their sins. Natal redemption from fatal attraction. Matthew means for us to know that there's always a second chance that death never has the last word, and there's always the possibility of rebirth. Despite all the meanness we purpose and all the betrayal we practice and all the death we do, God bends the whole thing to God's spectacular purpose. So maybe there's somebody here who, in a moment of forgetfulness or in half a lifetime of stubborn error, has left nothing but broken hearts and fractured relationship at his feet. I guess my advice would be, don't quit. Turn your life around and try again, because with God, there's always a second chance. God uses what is mixed and fixes what is broken and heals what is sick and turns the lost in the right direction. And we find that played out most definitively in the life of Jesus himself. What else does the cross mean, after all, but a second chance? God takes the wreckage of human history and turns it to God's splendid purpose. 